Thanks for tuning in to Three Strands Podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. All right, if you're just joining us, we're in the third part of a five-part series called Highlight Reel, where we're looking at the life of King David. And we're just kind of looking at some defining moments or highlights in his life. Some of them you're probably familiar with, maybe a couple uh, you haven't. But I do want to just recap, uh, if you're just joining us, what we've studied the past two weeks. So week one, we looked at the willingness to accept the call. And if you remember the prophet Samuel, uh, when God said, I want you to go to anoint a new king, he had looked at all the brothers of David. And I got a picture kind of illustrate what I'm talking about here. It's kind of like if he was looking at these big studs of a man, you know, muscular guys going, hmm, is he, is he the next king? Is he the next king? Is he the next king? And none of those guys were the next king. Instead, if you remember from week one, God said, go out into the field and I want you to find a shepherd boy named David. Okay. And so that's the guy that God chose end up being the next king. And I know what you look at it, and you're like, you got to be kidding me, but that's what happened, okay? We read the story and Shepherd David, okay, ended up being the king. That was week one. And then week two, we looked at a familiar story. You've all heard of David and Goliath. Kind of reminds me of this picture here. That's called Lily and Goliath, okay, from a basketball game last year. That's Lily Smith, and uh, she played against a girl from Danville Christian who was six foot six, signed with Liberty University, and I've never let her live that down. But I said, that, that reminds me of David and Goliath right there. But she's not here to enjoy that either. So she's, I think, up there as, as well. But So this week, we are in week three, and we are talking about compassion this morning. Compassion to help. And I don't know if you feel like you have the gift of compassion or not, but that's what we're going to spend our time learning about from the scriptures this morning. And I just want to be uh, upfront and honest with you. I've kind of dreaded this sermon all week long. I mean, it's a wonderful story from the scriptures uh, with some much needed applications for our lives. But I just don't think when Jonathan and his wife were naming their son Mephibosheth, that they thought about some poor guy standing in front of a bunch of people at church centuries later trying not to stumble over his name. Okay, so you're going to have to give me some grace and cut me some slack this morning as we talk about this next defining moment from this guy named Mephibosheth, all right, on the highlight reel of David's life. So it was the son of David's best friend, Jonathan. So what this story is about, if you've never heard it, it's about the importance of, of kind of showing kindness and compassion to people who are in need. My stepson, Chase, who's in the Marines, was, was telling me last week about a story from boot camp. And he said one day a fellow Marine's family sent him a, a care package, okay? And he said it had an entire box of candy in it, M&M's, Skittles, the whole, the whole works. And he said the drill instructors, I don't know if any of y'all went to boot camp in the military, but evidently that's frowned upon. But he said the drill instructors just took the candy, ripped it open, started eating it in front of them, going, oh, I bet this tastes good, doesn't it? throwing it at him, you know, just eating it all right in front of him, didn't even give him any. And then you go out, and they made you do physical training, PT, until he puked. Okay, that's the military for you. And I bet, I was just thinking after that incident, that, that cadet probably wished his family didn't care so much, you know, by sending that care package. And you know, I was just thinking that there are many aspects of this world that are not very caring. Not much kindness and compassion. The military, politics, 
business, athletics. But as Christians, we have an opportunity to show a side to the world by just caring for one another. We can show a different side, especially for people who are in need. Jesus said this in John 13, 35. He said, your love for one another will do what? It will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You want to prove that you're my follower, you're my disciples? Well, how are you loving people? Ephesians 4, 32. It says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.12, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with what? Tender-hearted mercy, with kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let's say that a dirty, unshaven man reeking of alcohol approaches you asking for money. Does your heart sympathize or does your mind criticize? I'm I'm not saying you should or shouldn't give them money. I'm just asking about where our heart is. Where does it go? The seat of our emotions. Where does it go in those moments? Or maybe you're sitting at home and you're watching the news and, and you see a natural disaster that killed dozens of people in a foreign country. Do you pray silently for those affected or do you just kind of yawn? A person with severe disabilities, they they exit the door at the same time as you do. Do your eyes seek theirs in a message of acceptance? Or do your eyes gaze ahead to, to just avoid any uncomfortable interaction? The scriptures say in 1 John 3, 17, if someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but listen, shows no compassion... How can God's love be in that person? Dear children, he said, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by what? By our actions. You know, our reaction when we encounter the needs of other people, that's kind of like the lie detector test of our love life. I mean, there's this little arrow inside of us that will either hover towards caring and empathy or it will dart away to, towards self-protective apathy, not caring. And so can I just ask you this morning? Let's just be real. What does your indicator say? When you evaluate your own life, what does it say? Now, now listen, I'm not talking about giving $20 to the guy you know, who you know is going to go out and buy cigarettes with it. Um, I'm not talking about the lady who, who asked you for diapers for her babies, but she says, and make sure you get the Huggies brand, okay? I'm not talking about the guy who says he's in need of gas money, and when you offer to fill up his tank at the gas station, he says, no, I only accept cash. I'm not talking about that, and all three of those things have happened to me in the last couple of years. I'm talking about those who are truly in need. You know, David's treatment of Mephibosheth is a wonderful example of how we as God's people should respond compassionately to those who are in need, true need. And you remember, King David, he was a tough soldier, but he also had a soft heart. And that's evident in 2 Samuel chapter 9, which is where we're going to be this morning. Let's jump right in in verse 1, where it says this. One day David asked, 
Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Is there anybody who I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? And what's going on here is David was remembering a promise that he had made years earlier to his best friend Jonathan before Jonathan was killed in battle. And at this time, David, um, he, he was running from King Saul, who was Jonathan's father, because Saul was trying to kill David. But both David and Jonathan knew that David was going to be the next king. And so Jonathan says to him in 1 Samuel 20, verse 13, he says this, But if he's angry and wants you killed, talking about his dad, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and live. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all of your enemies from the face of the earth. You see, back in these days, it was customary that when a new king took over, that all of the family members of the previous dynasty be executed. And what that did was it eliminated any possibility of a revolt. And so Jonathan was saying, David, listen, I know you're going to be the next king. But when you take over, we, you know, we're best buddies. Don't kill me, okay? But please, I know you're not going to do that, but please, would you spare the lives of my children? And David agreed. In fact, David made that promise more than once. He later made it to King Saul, Jonathan's father, in 1 Samuel 24. But you know, we've all made promises before. Oftentimes, the circumstances under which we make the promise are much different than the circumstances under which that promise is to be kept. I mean, it's one thing when you buy this shiny, brand new pickup truck or vehicle and you promise to make those payments every single month. But then, you know, 100,000 miles later and, and the vehicle's a little run down, it's got McDonald's french fries in the, in the floorboard and it's beginning to have some problems, you know, and it's hard to keep that promise then, isn't it? It's one thing to, to make a, a promise of faithfulness in marriage when you're down on one knee at the beach under the romantic moonlight, but it's another to keep that promise when you're feeling the pressure of unpaid bills. Or a child dies unexpectedly. Psalm 15.4 says, Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord, and listen, keep their promises even when it hurts. You know, guys, David kept his promise even though the circumstances had changed significantly, hadn't they? I mean, he didn't have to keep the promise. You know, the two people who had heard him make the promise were dead now, and so no one's going to know if he didn't keep it. He's not aware of any descendants that Jonathan has. But years later, in a moment that would be added to the highlight reel of King David's life, demonstrating compassion and grace, he remembers that promise that he made. Look at verse 2. It says he summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. 
Guys, the first step in being compassionate is keeping our word. It's just keeping our word. If we say, hey, I'll call you back, we call back. If we say, I'll be there at noon, then we try to show up on time. If we say, hey, I'll pray for you, we pray. If we say, mom, dad, you don't have to worry about when you get older, I'm going to take care of you. Then listen, even those circumstances are different then. Okay? You keep your word and you take care of them. David kept his word. And then he begins to do some research. He called in a former servant of King Saul, this guy named Ziba, and he asked him. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, but he's crippled in both feet, he said. You see, when Mephibosheth was just five years old, his father Jonathan and his grandfather Saul were killed in battle. And when his caretaker heard the news, she grabbed Mephibosheth and she hurried out of the palace trying to spare his life. But as she hurried down the steps, there it is, Mephibosheth fell and his feet and his ankles were broken so bad that they were shattered so severely that he never fully recovered and he was disabled for the rest of his life. He either walked with crutches or he hobbled along everywhere that he went. And Ziba seemed to be implying to David that, well, you, you know, David, there is this one descendant, but, but he's less than a person. I mean, he, he's crippled. Don't, don't worry about him, David. He, he's got a serious disability. He doesn't matter. But David immediately asks in verse 4, where is he? In Lodabar, Ziba told him. Now listen. If you live in a town called Lodabar, that can't be a good place to live, all right? Maybe, maybe hide the bar or raise the bar, but, but no Lodabar, okay? <coughs> Sorry. Actually, lo in Hebrew means no, and debar means pasture. No pasture. And so it's, it's this desolate, barren place. And it was in Gilead on the other side of the Jordan River, a long way from Jerusalem which was the seat of power back then. And Mephibosheth was probably in hiding. I mean, afraid that if it was ever known that, that he was the grandson of King Saul, that he would be killed. He'd be executed. And we don't know how old Mephibosheth was at this time, but later in the passage it said that he had a son named Micah, and so we know he had a family. But look at verse 5. It says, so David sent for him and he brought him from Makir's home. So one day, just picture it. There's this knock at Mephibosheth's door, right? And there stands a soldier. And he says, hey, King David would like to see you. I need you to come with me. Can you imagine? He was, must have been terrified, scared to death. And the second part of verse 6 says, when he came to David, he, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I'm your servant. You must have been shaken. I want you to imagine this. He hadn't been back to the palace since he was five years old. And I'd say just the atmosphere probably stirred up memories from his childhood. I mean, the last time he was here, he, he heard those terrible words. Hey, hurry, hurry. Your father's been killed. We've got to get out of here quick. Let's go. 
And then there was this severe pain as he broke his feet and, he's, and his ankles going down those steps. And so I'm sure that he was stressed and afraid and he didn't know why David wanted to see him. He could only assume the worst. I mean, he knew that his grandfather had repeatedly tried to kill David. Remember that? And so when he comes in and he's hobbling and he bows down before David and David says, Mephibosheth, I'd say he thought the next words out of King David's mouth were going to be fatal. He's a dead man. Look at it in verse 7. David says, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat, listen to this, you're going to eat here with me at the king's table. Guys, I think this must have just literally shocked Mephibosheth. To go from walking into the palace thinking you're about to be executed to being invited to live in the king's palace. I mean, to eat at the king's table and give, be given the, the estate of your grandfather. It's all just handed to you. Guys, that's grace. That is grace. Grace, giving something to someone who hasn't earned it and who will never be able to repay you. That is grace. Listen, if you're helping someone, expecting something in return, you're doing business, not kindness. If you're expecting something in return. That's why this story made the highlight reel of King David's life. I mean, here he is, this, this powerful, healthy king, and he stoops down to help someone who appears to the world to be just the opposite. Look at verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and he exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? A dead dog. He obviously didn't think too much of himself. Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and he said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he'll eat here at my table. And it says Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So counting Ziba, Mephibosheth now had 36 servants at his call at any moment. Guys, David was incredibly gracious. Look at verse 11. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's amazing. I want you just to picture it with me. Imagine with me, if you will, what those dinner scenes must have looked like, what they must have been like. I mean, think about it. The meal's ready, the dinner bell rings, and, and in walks David's children and guests. And you have Amnon, who's funny and smart at the table. And then there's Joab who walks in, one of David's soldiers. He's handsome, the Bible says, strong, you know, walking all upright. And then there's Absalom, who the Scriptures say that there was not a blemish from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet at that table. And then there's David's daughter, Tamar, 
the beautiful daughter of David. And then in walks Solomon. He's been in the library, you know, studying. He's brilliant. In other words, these beautiful, impressive, powerful people at this table. They're all there. And here we go. Here he comes. They hear the noise. Clunk. Clunk. Thud. Thud. And in comes Mephibosheth, just hobbling along. Can you picture it? And he humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And listen, the tablecloth of grace, it covers his feet. That's a wonderful story. But you know, that's not the end of it. No, there's an unusual epilogue. Years later, David himself runs away from the palace because that one of those sons I just mentioned, Absalom, he's leading a revolt against him. And David doesn't want to fight against his own son. But as he leaves the palace, he asks Ziba, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba answers, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give him back his grandfather's kingdom. Ziba is saying, he's saying, listen, David, Mephibosheth has turned on you. He thinks now that he's lived in the palace, if you and Absalom fight it out and you both lose, that he might be crowned king and would inherit the kingdom of his grandfather. Guys, this must have just crushed David, that Mephibosheth would be so ungrateful after all that he'd been given. And you know what? Think about your own life. Sometimes you can give a lot to people and instead of them being grateful, instead of them being thankful, it's what have you done for me lately? Got people like that in your life? Or some people will turn on you. They'll expect more. They'll be critical of you. They'll stab you in the back. But when David's army defeated Absalom, the king returned to the palace, and there was Mephibosheth waiting to welcome him back. Look at it in uh, 2 Samuel 19, verse 25. David said, why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth replied, my lord the king, my servant Ziba deceived me. I told him, saddle my donkey so I can go with the king. For as you know, I'm crippled. In other words, he's saying, Ziba didn't help me out. I mean, I, I couldn't get on the donkey all by myself, so I, I couldn't leave. I mean, I had to stay here. And in verse 27, Ziba has slandered me by saying that I refuse to come. But I know that my Lord the King is like an angel of God. So do what you think is best. I mean, all my relatives and I could expect, all we could expect was death from you, my Lord. But instead, you have honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more can I ask? And guys, what's happening here is he's just throwing himself on the mercy of the king. And now David's probably confused, not knowing who to believe. You know, who's telling the truth here? But, but David doesn't angrily bombard him with questions about his loyalty. He just simply gives him another chance. Look at it in verse 29. He said, you've said enough. I've decided that you and Ziba will divide your land equally between you. Give him all of it, Mephibosheth said. 
I am content just to have you safely back again, my Lord the King. Guys, David is full of compassion here to a guy who, from the looks of it, doesn't deserve it. You know, Mark Twain once said that kindness is the language the deaf can hear and the blind can see. So how does this story apply to our lives today? I'd like to share with you real quick here just three lessons of how we can apply this story to our lives. And the first one is this about compassion. Compassion is more than words. It's action. You know, David made a promise that he would take care of Saul's descendants. But that wasn't compassion, just making a promise. No, compassion is when he actually kept the promise and did it. You know, guys, compassion is not just feeling sorry for someone. No, it's showing it by works of, of mercy and kindness. It's, it's more than just words. It's more than just feelings. It's action. In my friend Tony Merritt's book uh, entitled Orphanology, He's talking about adoption is what the book is about. But he says this in that book. He says, obviously, obviously, not everyone is called to adopt, but every believer is called to act. That means, listen, not merely feeling sorry for orphans. Sentimentalism is no substitute for action. He said, in addition to adoption, other ways we can be actively involved include hosting orphans for a summer, financially supporting adoptive parents, fostering children in our community, and discipling local boys and girls from functionally fatherless families. But the point I got of that is stop feeling sorry for people and do something. That is compassion. Look at James 2, 15. The scriptures back this up. It says, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing. And you say, see you later, bye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. The Bible says, what good does that do? So you see, verse 17, faith by itself is not enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Guys, listen, compassion requires action. Listen, compassion sends the text. Compassion makes the call. Compassion, it cooks that meal. Compassion, it goes to visit that person. It says those words you've been holding back. It gives the hug. The second lesson I think we can learn from this story is this. That compassion is more than reacting to needs we see. It's seeking those needs out. You know, David could have very easily said here, you know, well, if any relative of Saul's ever resurfaces, then, then I'll help him out. Just let me know if that happens. No. Instead, he began to search for someone who was a descendant of Saul. You see, compassion does more than just respond to obvious needs. It looks for opportunities. It's alert to the needs that people have. You know, I know this isn't a very good illustration. It's the best I could do. But we have four English bulldogs at our house. Okay, we started with one. But my wife has the gift of addiction. I mean, addition. She's got the gift of addition. And it's kind of like those people who, um, 
you know, instead of having a birthday, they have a birth month. A lot of you ladies try to drag it out for a month. I know how you are. Okay. So, so it's just, instead of one dog, it multiplied into four, you know, and for those of you who are thinking about getting married, that's a little side note for you. Okay. It's called the gift of compromise. Okay. So compromise works like this when you get married. I wanted zero indoor dogs. Heather wanted an indoor dog. We compromised and got four. Okay. That's how it works. So anyway, but anyway, those dogs, we have four inside dogs. Each time we've gotten a new dog, I've noticed that the others get sad and depressed because they're not receiving as much attention as the one. Do I have a, yeah, that's the four dogs there we have. Keep that up there for just a second. So one of them will come home, a new one, and the others get sad and depressed. But Heather, she's wonderful with them. She will go out of her way to make each one of these dogs feel loved and special. She'll, she'll give Matilda there, the bottom right one there, she'll give her a bath and just massage her and rub on her because she's, you know, average bulldog life expectancy is 10 and she's like 11, so she's in trouble. But she'll just kind of rub her down and massage her, make her feel wonderful. And then Fiona, she's the one on the left there, the big one. But Fiona, she lets her sleep in the bed. <laughs> I can't stand that. But she'll let her sleep in the bed with her. And then Tank, the one at the top right, she makes sure to kiss him every morning and feeds him apples, you know, and just babies him before he goes outside every morning. She has to give Tank a kiss. It's ridiculous. But And then you got Nash here. He's the newest one in the middle. That's her baby. He gets exactly whatever he wants. I've nicknamed him Termite because he's eaten up our entire house. But she shows them compassion. I, on the other hand, it's not one of my gifts when it comes to inside animals. One time, Fiona, the, the big one, the big picture there, one time about two or three years ago, she got sick real quick. She ate something in the woods. She passes out in the backyard, loses her bladder, empties out, just laying there unconscious. We thought she was dead. Heather flips out. She gets her up, like giving her CPR. We're rushing her to the vet in Somerset, the emergency, and she was just panicking. And I heard her on the phone with the vet, and I heard a number pop out of that mouth, um, money, talking about dollars, like how much this was going to cost. And she's sitting there holding Fiona, and I said, how much money? Listen, the movie said all dogs go to heaven. Let her go. That's what I said. So I need to learn to be more compassionate. I'm learning as I get older, okay? But she popped right out of it, and we prayed for her, and she's still around. <laughs> so anyway, let's look at 2 Peter 1, verse... <laughs> that's, that's me. I need to be more compassionate. 2 Peter 1, verse 5. It says this, In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with generous provision of moral excellence and moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness. And listen, godliness with what? Brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. And it says the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, in other words, as we grow in Jesus... We ought to have more affection and kindness. We ought to be more compassionate than we were five years ago. Are you? Are you compassionate more today than you were five years ago? The next verse in verse 9 says, But those who fail to develop in this way, they are short-sighted or blind. Listen, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Guys, listen. 
If we don't develop this ability to spot people with needs and then respond to them, the Bible says that we are probably not growing very much in the Christian life. No, it says we're probably becoming very nearsighted and blind. And we may have forgotten how kind and compassionate that the Lord has been to us. I didn't write it, I was reading it. That's what God says. Last lesson is this. Compassion's more than giving money. It's building relationships. It's more than just giving money. It's building relationships. Listen, David didn't just send some money and security guards to Mephibosheth. He could have done that. Here, here's a check and, and here's some guards. No, he treated him like one of his own sons. He brought him into his house. He befriended him. He, he gave him personal attention. You know, sometimes we think that money is just the quick fix. And listen, it is compassionate to give money. It's important. It's significant. I'm not saying it's not. But there is a deeper level, and that is to get personally involved in other people's lives because oftentimes relationships are more needed than possessions. Ever thought about that? A college student reported this. They said, during my second month of school, I was breezing through a quiz when I came to an unusual question. The last question of the quiz read, what is the first name of the woman who cleans the building? I'd seen the cleaning lady before, but I had no idea what her name was. How was I expected to know her name? And so I just left it blank. Before I handed in my test, another student raised his hand and asked, Hey, professor, will the last question count towards our grade? Absolutely, said the professor. In your careers, you will meet many people. He said, all of them are important. They deserve your attention and care, even if all you do is smile and say hello. And he writes, I've never forgotten that lesson. And I also learned that her name was Dorothy. Guys, that's convicting to me. Because I can become so consumed with getting things done. You know, I've got a sermon to prepare and I've got a meeting to attend and I've got a game that, to go to that I can sometimes hurry by people and forget that compassion at least says hello and smiles or hopefully learns that, that person's name. It's personal attention. You know, one of the most practical uh, com compassionate things that we can do is just open up our home occasionally. You know, after church, say to someone who's alone, hey, why don't you come over to our house and eat today? Or you've got a new neighbor, maybe someone who's just starting to attend our church and say, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to get together on Saturday and watch the game. Why don't you come over? For five or six uh, years, we hosted our high school life group at our house. And all these kids would come over with high energy and we'd have food, fun, and fellowship. You know, they'd step in dog poo and track it in the house and, and uh, they would spill meatballs on the floor, you know. But listen, I loved having them over to our house to learn more about Jesus. And now we try to host our adult life group. Dave and Stephanie, they host 30 college kids every Wednesday night at their house. Others of you are generous by opening up your home for life groups as well. But listen, it's not hard. Just open up your home that God's blessed you with. Don't turn it into a museum. Invite people over. 
That, that's what the Scriptures just call simply practicing hospitality. David didn't invite Mephibosheth over for just one night. He said, no, you'll always eat at my table. And guys, I, some of you, I mean, you do good at this. You show great compassion by opening up your homes to foster children and elderly parents. Some of you have done that. Or foreign exchange students for a prolonged period of time. What a great opportunity to express love and introduce them to Jesus. That's compassion. You know, Jesus said in John 13, 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. That's how they're going to know. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. I don't want you to miss the spiritual significance of the story this morning. Please just listen as we close here. Like Mephibosheth, we have all fallen into sin. And we're spiritually paralyzed for life. And you know, some of us, we oftentimes hide from God out of fear or out of guilt. But listen to me. But the King, Jesus, the Son of David, He seeks us out because He loves us. He knocks on the door of our hearts and He invites us to come live at His place, in His palace to enjoy His blessings, to sit at His table, to be adopted into His family. Guys, listen, we don't deserve it. But David didn't do it for Mephibosheth. You remember, he did it for Jonathan. And guys, listen to me. God doesn't do it because you're worthy. He doesn't do it because we're deserving. No, He does it because of Jesus. Maybe this morning you're sitting there and you feel like you're living in low debar. And Jesus is just knocking at the door of your heart saying, would you just come and sit in my palace? Would you just come live with the king? Guys, how in the world could you refuse that offer of grace? How could you refuse that offer of love? So I just want to invite you this morning, if you want to give your life to Jesus, He wants you just as you are. Now, He won't leave you like that, but we all come to Jesus just as we are. And if you would just simply confess that you're a sinner and trust Him to save you, listen, today could be the day that everything changes for you. You could sit forever at the King's table. Some of you here this morning are already Christians and you've been maybe thinking about joining this church. This would be a great time to kind of nail down that commitment and to join our church family. Let's stand and sing this last song together with the, as the band leads us. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, we'd love to meet you face to face. We gather every Sunday at 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park Building. We hope to see you soon.